You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Hey everyone, I'm Cherish Badzinski. I work behind the scenes for Messy Jesus Business Podcast, primarily as a writer and sound editor. And I would like to invite you to help us celebrate an upcoming milestone, our 50th episode. I know Messy Jesus Business Podcast means a lot to many of you. Now here's your chance to let us know what you love most, to share how Messy Jesus Business has inspired and influenced you. Here's how. Simply record yourself telling us about your favorite episode, something you've learned that changed your perspective, or what the program means to you. Really, anything about Messy Jesus Business Podcast that matters to you is just fine. Then email your voice audio recording to us at MessyJesusBusiness at gmail.com. You just might hear yourself on an upcoming episode. That's MessyJesusBusiness at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. And now on to our guest. Paul Engler is founding director of the Center for the Working Poor based in Los Angeles. He has worked as an organizer in the immigrant rights, global justice, and labor movements. Paul is one of the founders of the Momentum Training, which educates hundreds of activists each year in the principles of momentum-driven mobilization. Along with his brother Paul, he is the author of This is an Uprising, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Paul and I talk about his call to become a community organizer. We explore how meditation and mystical experiences transformed him and fostered his devotion to Jesus. We discuss how the spiritual life can be integrated with working for social justice and how the principles of nonviolence can inform our work towards social change. We also talk about nonviolent revolutionary resistance, the influence of money and power, and the importance of recognizing and resisting the sway of dominant culture. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. Paul Engler. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Well, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Okay. Do you identify as a a Catholic and a Christian? I know you grew up around religious people. Uh, Your mom is a former Franciscan sister. Your dad he was a former priest, right? 
Yes, that's right. My dad was a radical priest. My mom was a radical nun. Yeah. You and your brother grew up in the Catholic worker community in Des Moines. We didn't live in the Catholic worker community, but we were, we always affiliated with them and did volunteer work with them and knew Frank and other people at the community. We were very embedded in the Catholic peace and justice subculture of Des Moines. Mm. Uh, Bishop Digman, who was one of the most progressive bishops in the country and was known as sort of the anti-war bishop, was a very good friends of my mother and my father, which is one of the reasons why we ended up in Des Moines. That's interesting. So that was the 70s and 80s? That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And here we are, 2021. Now you're in a Catholic worker community in Los Angeles, the Center for the Working Poor, and you are an author of This is an Uprising, How Nonviolent Revolution is Shaping the 21st Century, a book about social movements. What happened between that and that time in Des Moines and you growing up in that community and now you being who you are today? Um, Like, what's the story of Paul? And how did you discover your call as an organizer of social movements and as the founding director of the Center for the Working Poor? In community organizing, we call this the story of self, us, and now. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but if you knock on a door into the community, people are like, why in the hell should I talk to you? What's your story? You know, so I was raised in a very special family. Uh, my mom and dad uh, really left being a priest and a nun, but they really believed in the vision of the beloved community that they were part of this reform movement in the Catholic Church uh, post-Vatican II. And they were involved in the Latin American solidarity movements, uh, the anti-war movements that were uh, challenging U.S. imperialism in Latin America. That was very common among progressive Catholics. They were very uh, involved in Jesse Jackson's primary campaign and civil rights causes. And we grew up going to picket lines and protests. And even the way we were raised was very special. My parents really wanted us to, to have it, have a voice in the family where the last shall be first and the first shall be last mm. was a vision of a beloved community where we all, all, everyone's voices were heard, even in the prayers in dinner time. My father would try to get us all to pray together. And mm. even if we were little and I, you know, I didn't want to participate, but he would force me and I would, I was, I thank God for Spider-Man. You know? <laughs> Good son, good son, you know. So yeah, yeah. That took a lot of different different things in uh in the family were very noticeable in and how we would have family meetings to talk about things. We sponsored Vietnamese refugees in the 80s. They were our babysitters. We, My grandma lived upstairs. We took care of her. We were just part of, of a, a counterculture. We, we were involved in what's called Christian family movement, which were based communities in the United States, which were modeled on based communities in Latin America. And so we were, we were involved in this really special uh, parish too, uh, the Drake Newman Parish, which most of the people defected and created the intentional Eucharistic community in Des Moines, Iowa still exists. Uh, a lot of those people are, are people that we grew up with and were surrounded by. But there were a lot of challenges to keep that beloved community alive. One is that I'm, I'm dyslexic, uh, which mm-hmm. was really hard on the family. I had a real hard time learning how to read. Another thing happened is my father died when I was very young. When I was nine years old, my, my dad had a tr- tragic a heart attack. Uh, we weren't expecting it. It was on Christmas Eve. Um, and our family was really thrown into disarray. 
And my mom got a low wage job taking care of old people at nursing homes, which is uh, domestic work and work primarily of, that's done by immigrants, even in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, is, is really not valued in our capitalist economy. Um, and my mom had a lot of anxiety to try to take care of three boys on the youngest of, of two brothers. And um, this made a lot of uh, dealing with our grief with the death of our father and the, the vision of the beloved community and all the structures that we had set up we sort of fell apart a lot mm. of my So there, there were a few things that happened. One, my mom um, really gave us a sense of autonomy for us to build a community. Um, and even when we were young, we really took uh, tremendous amounts of responsibility for each other. Uh, and my eldest brother, in a lot of ways, was, was a father figure to me. He probably wouldn't like me saying that, but I, I'm very grateful. You know, that sense of beloved community really made it so that my, I am my brother's keeper and my brothers were a huge role in my life. But that wasn't easy. I mean, my mom would break down a lot and, and um, had a lot of challenges. And, but she really said, you know, this house is your kingdom. And I really want you guys to build a, a community here. And so a lot of the misfits and the nerds and the people that didn't fit into the neighborhood and uh, that were bullied like we were sort of ended up at our house. And at first we weren't political. We were sort of Dungeons and Dragons kids that read comic books and whatever, but sooner rather than later, we became political and uh, that saved our, saved my life. I think mm. I was really depressed and bullied and felt like I didn't fit into the educational system and didn't fit into my neighborhood. And then all of a sudden I had this group of misfits that were made up of all these different, the one Jewish kid in our neighborhood and the one kid whose family members had chronic illnesses and a Native American woman, Candy, still a good friend of mine, you know, was all part of our crew. Later on, uh, there was a lot of LGBT women, not men, but women that didn't come out of the closet until in college. But And we were home for, for myself. And I really feel that saved my life because I wanted to get out of that neighborhood. I wanted to get out of that dynamic. And after that, there was this huge dynamic within my, my um, group of friends. At first, we were just like kind of punk, um, hmm. almost had anarchist sensibilities. We were just like, screw the mainstream. We didn't like the preppy kids that were mm -hmm. drinking a lot. And we didn't like the mainstream culture. And so we just did everything that they didn't do. You know, mm -hmm. they, they drank. We, did, we were straight edge, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and th they, they partied in this way. We partied and we played guitar and, and <laughs> I, gonna, I thought you were going to say play chess or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, we did all, we, we did everything. And we, you know, we were, we <laughs> kind of like, uh, we loved lesbian folk music, but we were kind of punk in a lot of ways. <laughs> Our whole style was punk. It was like oppositional and uh -huh. angry. And none of us at that point, in my, you know, my early teens, I was an adolescent boy. I did not know how to talk about just tremendous amounts of grief and pain that I had, mm. but I, it was only until later that I realized that, you know, we were all together because of different, different suffering that we were experiencing. And mm -hmm. my brother Francis ended up becoming a community and labor organizer um, for low wage workers at the university he was at. They recruited him and he started getting training. He started coming back and, and training and radicalizing me. Hmm. And we started having this dynamic 
when we were about like sophomores in college, in high school about do we organize these kids that bullied us that we hated you know and wow. and we you know it was like our desire to be morally righteous you know <laughs> and to be separate mm-hmm. uh, or do we do we actually want to do something do we want to actually organize and feel a sense of power so our desire for power and popularity on one hand on the other side moral righteousness and comfort of being isolated and mm-hmm. this 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 came out in in the debates over student government because one fraction of my friends thought that student government was a puppet uh, fascist government of uh, of the school administration that uh, only stupid popular kids would run for uh, that had no power was purely symbolic and it was actually destructive because it was extracting free labor out of the student body to plan these stu- activities that sh- they should have paid labor to do. That was <laughs> one end. In my end was the more the more uh, it's a, actually it's a symbolic de- democratic front for the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and that we should take over the student government, even if it doesn't have any power, it has legitimacy in the eyes of the student body of the people yeah. should be used as an instrument for the revolutions. So after that, we took over student government mm. in high school and it was, it was the best thing in the world. It's like the <laughs> took over uh, and were popular in the student body. And and after that, that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But a lot of things really changed my life. Uh, actually, it happened through Buddhism. I, I went to a 10-day Vipassana as taught by S.N. Goenka, where you meditate for 12 hours a day. Um, it totally kicked my butt. I uh, <laughs> All this trauma and pain, like I had never done therapy. I was, I was a junior in college, and all of a sudden I had like... I was plunged into just a whole lifetime of grief and pain uh, from my dad dying, my grandma dying, me being dyslexic, all this anxiety that I had never really processed in my family Mm -hmm. and being a parentified child, all these things. And all that just, it was like, came vomiting up, you know, Uh, uh, and it rocked my world. I remember going to the monks uh, or the teachers in the monastery at the last day of the retreat and say, what have you done to me? Have you slipped like LSD into my water? I mean, I'm like totally messed up. My heart is like mm-hmm. open in a way I've never experienced. And I'm like emotionally on this roller coaster ride of feeling all these intense things. I'm normally really stable guy. The abbot was like, oh, it's okay. This is like an obstacle course. Everything's unloading. Now you go back into society. You're, it's gonna, you're gonna feel great, you know? And they were totally right. I went back, my heart was open. I fell in love, you know, I, for the, for a time that I did more deeply than I ever had before. I mean, I didn't know how much I was numbing out and contemplative and meditative practices really opened me up in a new way. And also gave me a taste of mystical experience, mm-hmm. which rocked my world. I mean, I don't, spirituality to me is very different. Once you start experiencing mystical stuff, then everything changes. Yeah, yeah. My ex-girlfriend went and uh, she she was part of my centering prayer group. I have a centering prayer group that is part of my community. And she's been going to it maybe for six years, seven years. But she did brain surgery for her epilepsy. And she accidentally got a brain, a steroid for her brain. And uh, she had a a, like a psychedelic trip pretty much. And Mm. 
it rocked her world. It was very scary for her. She had like a death trip or whatever. But after that experience, she's like, like all this stuff that we're reading, I didn't really get it. Now I get it. For me, that was, that was after my first retreat, like I had a whole different experience of spirituality and mysticism and the mystical experiences that I was going through were not prototypical Buddhist. Uh, you know, it wasn't like I, I had the, even the vocabulary of Buddhism, you know, I liked it, but it wasn't, it wasn't my mother tongue. You know, I didn't have this relationship with emptiness. The ground of being to me was the unconditional loving father, you know, or mother. It wasn't, it was a personified sense of love. You know, it wasn't the ground of being wasn't emptiness, you know, it was, yeah. It was God, you know, and and um, and also devotional practice was very important to me because it opened up my heart and I'm a recovering a-hole, you know, so opening up my heart and, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, being on a recovery path with with God is yeah. and having trust in a loving God that I that I believe in and devotional to is, is very helpful to me in a way that Buddhism wasn't. I did lots of different 10 day retreats, but it wasn't until I found Thomas Keating and the centering mm-hmm. prayer crew. I went on my first, you know, I was just doing it. I wasn't, didn't even consider myself really a Christian. I was just, uh, you know, doing different retreats. I did a, a couple different Buddhist retreats and the Vipassana tradition and Thai mm-hmm. forest tradition. I Thich Nhat Hanh and Zen mm-hmm. tradition, and I went on a Yogananda retreat from mm-hmm. sort of Vedanta Buddhism, um, uh, Hinduism. I went on a week long retreat uh, in in those ashrams. All all of those practices were amazing, incredible, you know. And I, to me, the Holy Spirit was there, leading me towards Christianity. And mm-hmm. then in the Yogananda ashram, they teach devotional practice, which they call Bhakti Yoga. And they, they recommend, you know, picking a, a devotional figure, a face of God. They say, you know, what, which one do you personify? Which one is, is God that you can relate to and have a relationship with? And Jesus was up there on the altar with like Ganesh and 20 yeah. other different. And I, I love Jesus. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do devotional. I mean, Jesus is a good revolutionary dude. Like I, mm-hmm. I Jesus. And so uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had a, such a positive aspect of Jesus and God for my parents. So I had a lot of trust from that black Jesus. I mean, I, mm. that, that's the Jesus that I was, I grew up with. So when devotional practice was introduced to me, it was very powerful. And it sort of allowed me to go back into my, the Christian contemplative tradition. And when I learned the Christian contemplative tradition, I mean, my, my parents read Thomas Merton and talked a little bit about it. There wasn't really a sense of it. It was more peace and justice Catholicism. It was more about being good socially and all these great communitarian values. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really, there wasn't a deep mystical spirituality. Even even my mother, you know, her order is, is, is partly, as you know, it's your order, you know. <laughs> I know. She was a contemplative thing. And she yes. was like, no, we were just taught to be silent. And it was just horrible. <laughs> we never taught any methods, you know. We oh, that's so that. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So for the listeners, Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, my, the order, the community of sisters that I'm in, uh, we have the practice of adoration. And yeah, it's true. I would say that when I first went, it was like, here, these are the prayers we say, and you're welcome to journal. And, and then I noticed that, some sisters were just sitting there silently, like, were they sleeping or 
oh, is that meditation? What is meditation? You know? So no, I really didn't learn how to meditate until after I came to community. For me, I was hungry to learn. And so I did what I could to kind of just start asking people, how do you meditate? How do you meditate? And reading and, and listening to things here and there. And I, I, when you were saying you meditated for 12 hours, I I am so impressed because I still can't even meditate for 12 minutes. You know, like, I don't even know how you did that. Well, I mean, I think that the, the Richard Rohr, Thomas Key and Cynthia Bourgeois, James Finley, um, even Thomas Merton, they went back into their own tradition and found these things that were really lost. And my experience with my mom and with my father is that they didn't, ha- they were, they were not taught formally how mm-hmm. to do this. Mm-hmm. and they didn't have retreats that was really, and they didn't have a lineage of people doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you're not doing prolonged meditation, St. John of the Cross is not the same, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And not that St. John of the Cross isn't valuable for everyone, but you know, he's really talking about the experience of the dark night that 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 monks go, monks and nuns go through. At, you know, when they spend extended periods of time in yeah. in temple to prayer. Most of these these orders did not teach this. It was t- t- taught very well, and that's my experience too within Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, in Western Buddhism especially, uh, and in the these ashrams. So mm-hmm. when I went and did a retreat with Thomas Keating. It was awesome because it was, it was, it, it was, I was experiencing the same thing as, as a lot of the same mystical experiences that, and the same profound depth of practice, yeah. but it was in the, it was using my mother tongue mm-hmm. and it was integrated into my, my social justice teaching. And it was integrated into the mythologies and the archetypes that I had grown up with. It was like coming home and mm-hmm. I was so grateful for it. And also I do 12 step work. So it was very integrated with 12 step in a way that Buddhism wasn't, you know, I fell in love with that. And then also I thought that I think Thomas Keating was trying to create a lineage, uh, which is a different sort of transmission. is isn't just you join the order, but there's a transmission of practice Mm -hmm. of people taking a theology and really practicing and having an embodied wisdom teaching that's handed from um, student to teacher to student teacher through generations. And I think Thomas Keating was really trying to create a, a Christian lineage of contemplation. And so that's really what I, I was like, that's it. That's my lineage. Yeah. Now, since then, it's been really challenging. It's been very challenging because there isn't that many young people in the lineage mm. and it's hard to get the support that I, I need and want for somebody who's committed to that lineage. Yeah. Uh, and that has been one of the biggest struggles of my life. Mm, thank you for sharing all that. What a beautiful story about how the spirits just really used you and, and, you know, also let like helped you to discover who you truly are. There's been this unfolding at such a, such a great witness. There's so much I want to talk to you about and I let's just, let's switch gears now and let's talk about social movements. Can we? Okay, go for it. Okay. I'm just going to give you a little background on me towards the end of my undergrad degree, I discovered that one of my, that my greatest passion probably is how communities of faith can influence social movements. I ended up writing my thesis, my history thesis in college on um, how the faith communities in South Africa were envisioning the Truth and Reconciliation Commission during apartheid and thinking, okay, we got to do something to heal the country after all this. And whether or not the Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually accomplished that is debatable, 
but I, but I was inspired and, and, and I felt like I just fell into this wealth of, of history about how people of faith have really been leaders when it comes to social change and how having faith, having a love for, of God and neighbor influences the, the passion and, and the vision. So what do you have to say about how communities of faith and Christians in general can help create social change today or ought to be? My field is nonviolence. That's like, if anybody were asking me this field that I study the most and mm-hmm. about, it's called civil resistance, which is often called strategic nonviolence. And there's two major fields within nonviolence. No one needs to know this. It doesn't really matter. But there's principled nonviolence and there's strategic nonviolence. And nonviolence is really something that only got in the English lexicon uh, in the 50s or something, you know, mm. was widely used. And it was a philosophy that emanated uh, primarily from Gandhian nonviolence and anti-colonial struggles uh, that were trying to figure out different and creative ways to overthrow governments and overthrow colonial power. And to me, there's always been ways of doing non-cooperation that are not inherently violent, meaning that they're not, they don't actually require physical harm, physical violence. But Gandhi and uh, a lot of the leaders of the Indian independence movement, Vina Boba, all these other uh, great leaders really took it a whole new level in that they were trying to talk about it as like this um, spiritual force. How do we uh, integrate a spiritual understanding of the universe in our faith? And how do we actually do that in a way that's actually strategic, that how do we use the power of love, sacrificial love, that is the cornerstone of our faith and is the cornerstone of the whole metaphor in contemplative Christianity is the Paschal mystery, the death and resurrection on the cross. And, you know, what is Jesus's teaching in how to transform society using that, those metaphors, and also the, the, the soul force, the force of sacrificial love to change things in a way that is drastically in opposition to how every other person and, and most institutions and most anybody throughout human history has thought about social change. Yeah. And what people don't realize is that Jesus was one of the first, you know, people to really articulate a vision of nonviolent revolutionary change. Uh, he had a vision, which was kingdom of God, uh, and he had a method, which was nonviolence, uh, and he articulated it on the Sermon on the Mount and other places. And then there was 300 years of being an underground movement in opposition to the to the empire that um, lots of great uh Principled nonviolent thinkers, Yoder, um, Mennonite thinker, Walter Wink, you know, these are all people that are very good at articulating the theology of nonviolence. Um, they're very powerful and I think very accurate. But what Gandhi was really doing is systematizing this new way of creating change that is about 
changing public opinion, changing and creating unity among people and creating cultural change rather than trying to just take over the state or to or to have a, a violent or forceful takeover or frontal attack of the opposition. And that, to me, it, it was a huge revelation, a historical revelation. There were Jewish prophets that had a little bit of that, you know, did some nonviolent tactics, but it was really, it was really Jesus, and then the first three hundred years of of Christianity that really modeled a way in which a minority population could topple an empire. You know, now whether or not it got co opted or they actually toppled the empire is a whole nother. Whole nother <laughs> right. And Gandhi was very when he was formulating and systematizing that. Uh, he realized that lots of faith had elements of nonviolence, but it was Christianity that really had it clearly articulated in an act and that could be applied to social movements. Since then, there's been a lot of work that's been done uh, by the field of civil resistance or strategic nonviolence and uh, people like Gene Sharp and Erica Chenoweth and other people that have tried to say, how do we think about this? in ways that aren't religious or spiritual? How do we actually strategically as political scientists or as, as strategists, how do we think about nonviolence? And that's what I'm incredibly fascinated with that. But I do believe that ideally those things go together. The strategic and the principled go really well together, even though you know a lot of what I write about is strategic nonviolence. These lineages, as we say, the tradition has a lot of wisdom within it. Mm-hmm. Most people can't tap that, you know, and that's not really taught at the parish level. You know, it's not taught at churches, but our tradition has within it a nonviolent revolutionary strategy. Like Jesus is really teaching us how to resist. And that if you study, like, especially I think some of the Mennonite or anti-Baptist theological thought on nonviolence is really powerful, you know, in, in that. And that's really deeply embedded in the Christian tradition. But most people never taste that. I think a lot of times what churches are able to do is practice more egalitarian and loving ways of interacting and practice a theology that's more progressive than the dominant culture. And the standards are pretty damn low hmm. <laughs> because the dominant culture is so individualistic, mm-hmm. so competitive, so capitalist and consumer-based that you know having churches is one of the only bases of people that get involved in movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great uh, sociologist uh, that we quote all the time, uh, Robert Putnam. He wrote this book called Bullying Alone, which is sort of this very comprehensive uh, study on what's called social capital, which is basically community, how much community do people have. And to to summarize the book in one sentence is, we're screwed and we have very little community compared to what we had before. You know, mm. that makes everything harder to organize. If we mm. want democracy to work, as the great one of the great community organizers said, there's either money power or people power. Those mm. are the two forces in a democracy that are really the primary forces. And if you can't organize people, money dominates. And how you organize people is it's very hard to organize people as individuals. You kind of have to organize people in community. And yeah. most of the communities, you know, the biggest base of movements in the United States throughout history has been either churches or unions. Hmm. Those are the two bases that people organize. Without that, it's very, very hard to build a 
movement. Yeah. And the civil rights movement was based on the alternative infrastructure of the black community because they were they were alienated and and isolated from the dominant uh, institutions of Jim Crow South, and because of racism, they had to they they had to flourish in their own communities. Uh, mm-hmm. And because of that, they had a base that became the basis of the civil rights movement. A lot of times, it isn't talked about is like Daddy King and Martin Luther King had to have huge fights within within the black church, uh, the traditional black church, to to get them to support civil rights. It was not most black churches were not that supportive, mm-hmm. and were very scared about getting involved. But the movement did polarize. And in the end, those churches became the basis of, of the movement. The Southern Christian Leadership Council, which was Martin Luther King's organization, was a coalition of churches. Hmm. Yeah. Until you shed this light, I don't think I've really thought about how radical it is to be someone who is committed to building community and living my life in community. I just I mean, I think back to my vocation story and like, you know, in the early, when I was in my early twenties, I was just, I want to live a life of community and prayer and service. How do I do that? Oh, I think I'll be a nun. That'll work, you know, (laughs) and it's been working great. And so, and, and yeah, and here I am, I live in intentional community just this past week. Um, you know, we just kind of gather, offer gatherings to people spontaneously where it's all, we're all interested in hospitality for the sake of building community and relationships. And it's so, it's been so interesting for me to observe how people come and they're like, this is amazing. People are so lonely. I've never experienced anything like this. People are really talking about things of substance here. And I'm like, this is my day-to-day life as a Franciscan sister. I'm so sad to hear that this is not the way you live. And I am so happy to share it with you. Come on in. So how can people that are out there, our listeners that aren't part of a religious community, like I am, but, but want to be invested in building community, building relationships, building up the people power. What are some practical tips you can offer so that they can become involved in the resistance of, of injustices and, and work for social change in the ways that the spirit is inviting them to? This is a question I've spent years thinking about is like, what do you recommend just people who hear about a problem or want to get involved in social justice or the environment or climate change, and they're not connected to a group they don't know. And he wrote a book that was sort of like a summary of the big book of this is an uprising called the resistance guide. Oh. which was sort of our, our recommendations of how to do that. And I will say this, social justice is not an individual game. Right. It, you can't really do it alone. You can, on Facebook, you know, like things and you can you know, <laughs> do little consumer behavior and whatever. But, you know, the really the study of social movements is individual action isn't what actually creates change. And, and people pretending it is, is actually not healthy. It, mm-hmm. We have to acknowledge that social change is collective action. Yeah. And collective action means you have to do it with other people. Right. And that's really hard because our society is teaching people not to do anything collectively. It's, yeah. it's you to be an individual consumer and to do, and that's how people think of activism. Oh, it's me doing you know, purchasing my clothing and what I eat and right. what I buy and, and, you know, my social media presence and whether or not right. I'm her as an individual. Do and, I wear and, the right button? Do I have the right banner on my social media picture? To me, that is not, that is not organizing <laughs> and that's not 
that's not uh, that it's just not that effective. You know, yeah. it can individual actions can be helpful, but only when you're in a community. Mm-hmm. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you get a community? Right. Right. And one of the things that we we really debated this, because at first when we were training, you know, I created a training institute with my brother, Carlos Saavedra, who's a, a dream activist and other a whole crew of people coming out of Occupy and the dream movement and the student divestment movement around climate change. So, you know, we had a core of leaders and we were we were trying to train lots of activists about how to get involved in movements. And one of the things, you know, we really realized is that people need to join groups and they don't have the ability to do good collective action. Like individuals don't, they need training. They need a craft. They need to be surrounded by elders and people that teach them how to take collective action. And, and they start doing things with people on a small level, and then they learn more and they grow. Very few people can run campaigns just because, and a campaign is like lots of tactics that work together over long periods of time that involve lots of people. Normally you need an organization, you know, in a knowledge, you know, it's like as a community Uh organizer, it takes like three years before you can run a campaign, you know? Uh And so what we said is you should join a group that already has a campaign. You know, mm-hmm. you should join 350 or moveon.org or join a political campaign, yeah, uh, a candidate, yeah. a movement, progressive candidate, join the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, join Democratic Socialists of America. And then one thing that happened, the resistance movement after Trump was elected exploded. Mm-hmm. Women's March was the second largest day of protest in American history. And they created these women's circles, you know, these women huddles uh, and also uh Indivisible, which was a group that created a little packet for all these groups to form that were not led centrally by any group. And so what we realized is a lot of times it's easier to get your friends together and then and form a group and affiliate with with a group than it is to just join another community. Uh... It's easier to form your own community than it is to join another community because joining another community is hard. They're different people. They're not your friends. You don't know them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier to us. That didn't make any sense. It was like, oh, forming your own group. That takes tons of time and tons of responsibility. And the reality of this for a lot of people, it's easier to form a group within their pre-existing community than it is joining something that's scary and different and form your relationships with a new community. Now, either one is great, either join a group or form a small group. But if you form a small group, you need help. You need to affiliate with Indivisible or Move On or something like that, that can give you advice about what you do when you're actually in a small group. Kind of like 12 step, you know, it's like you can form a, a group of friends that are going to do 12 step together, but you kind of need a program to teach you what to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I just think about the marches that I've gone to in my life. I don't think I've ever gone to one alone. It's always like, oh, sister so-and-so, what are you doing? Can you come with me? Yeah. <laughs> and even, even when I've done spontaneous actions, like, like something is setting me up and I'm, okay, I'm going to make a sign right now and I'm going to go stand in front of the post office because that's the closest federal building is the least I can do. No, and also that's, that's what drives us. A lot of times yeah. what drives people to be activists is that they have a base of people that they feel accountable mm-hmm. to, right? Mm-hmm. And like, even myself, I don't know how many protests or how actively involved I would be if I didn't have people in my community that are engaged in the labor mm-hmm. movement or engaged in the immigrant rights movement or engaged in, and those people are calling me up saying, are you going to go to this protest? Are you going to do mm-hmm. this? 
And because they're, I'm in a relationship with them, I feel, sometimes I feel guilted to do it, but you know, a lot of times I'm really excited that I get to participate in and and stuff. And so, you know, you need the relationships to keep it going. You know, people, they might come because they're excited by the moment or the cause, but they stay for the people. Mm, Amen. Oh, Paul, this is so good. Thank you so much for you. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I was an elder of a church that was formed at Burning Man. It was evangelical Christians, progressive evangelical (laughs) Christians that formed. They were like, we love this Burning Man thing. We're going to form. It was called Tribe of L.A. And they were like, we want to form form a church that's like Burning Man. So uh, it was at an art warehouse where they produced art for Burning Man. It was like there was drum circles at every every uh, every session there was a lot of art stuff and ritual was constantly redefined and participatory like it yeah. is at Burning Man yeah. but it was Christian ritual you know they were trying to yeah. use metaphors and archetypes within the Christian tradition and I love this I love this this church and we would do dialogical um, participatory um, homilies where mm. somebody would give up we'd re- we'd collectively read something on a powerpoint everyone would read it at the same time like a, a bible passage and then everyone would comment and we had totally conservative hmm. evangelicals that were interpreting these bible scriptures and then they had me which is you know <laughs> like super progressive very social justice oriented mystic and it was i mean and i looked at them and i was like I have nothing in common with you. Like your interpretation of this is exactly the opposite of the meaning I get out of the scripture. I didn't have like traditional theological education. I've done a 40 day Ignatian retreat. I've done lots of different Christian monastic retreats. I've, I spent a lot of time in the monastery praying and meditating, but, and I do, I do daily readings right now. I'm reading Anthony DeMello's commentary on the Ignatian spirituality but mm-hmm. you know so i'm always reading scripture and and different contemplative masters but I, i'm not uh, i wasn't trained to be a theologian i was trained to be a therapist and a community organizer so how i would comment on these things just came from my heart and came from my own tradition because i'm embodying that tradition yeah. and instantly the whole community called me catholic boy they just that's what they <laughs> said they said, you're catholic boy and i'm like what do you mean i i have a weird relationship with like what is it for a lot of different people? That's an insult. You know, mm-hmm. like in, if, if you said that in the, I was going to the intentional Eucharistic community where I grew up and they called you Catholic boy, that was an insult because oh. it means like you're just touting the line of the Catholic hierarchy, yeah. you know? So, but that's my tradition. That's, you know, that, that is, that's what I embody. And so, um, and you know, I have more in common with other mystics than I do with other conservative Christians. I mean, I don't even think they're part of my same religion. I mean, the beloved community that I'm talking about is not the same, and it's not the same Jesus. I'm not talking to the same, I'm not praying or praising the same Jesus as they are. They might be using the same term, but it's a totally different Jesus. Mm. It's a totally different, you know, my Jesus is a revolutionary mystical Jesus. He used the, the kingdom of God was his metaphor of challenging the powers and principalities of us living with unconditional love and using that force that is in opposition to consumer capitalism, that's in opposition to the state, that's in opposition to all the different ways in which we get coerced in our dominant culture to do um, horrible, selfish things for each other, against each other, and against Mm -hmm. ourselves. You know, Mm -hmm. the dominant culture is primarily teaching us to 
in some ways to feed our false selves. It is what, what Jesus, I think, would call the worship of mammon. And St. Paul says the root of all evil is, is the worship of money. You know, it's like, this mm-hmm. is not, I'm not, I'm quoting scripture here. This isn't like, they're not just saying like money is a problem. It's like, Jesus is like, you know, it's money or God, you know, and, and a lot of people, even in his time, he realized that that was one of the biggest problems. Now we have a whole society that's built around that. What does it mean is, is to me, it, it means that you're a nonviolent revolutionary mystic to be a disciple of Christ. And it's not an easy way to live. I don't know if, I mean, I would like it if everyone lived that way, but I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily the, the way to happiness for most people. You know, it's a countercultural lifestyle and it's very hard to live outside the stream of the dominant culture and the economy and technology, you know the way that Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God was a way that was much more about transcending our egoic desires and our egoic operating system that is about uh, power and control, esteem and affection and and uh, security and survival and learning how to live more altruistically, more in solidarity, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, where the marginalized voices are raised up, where the jubilee, where everyone is freed from jail, where everyone mm-hmm. is liberated in, in a way that is in harmony with the spirit. Yeah. Uh, Amen, brother. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Maybe you should, uh, you know, get that theology degree so you get the credentials to preach because 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 this was this was great. <laughs> But I do think there is something very, I think that when you do deep contemplative practice yeah. and you, you know, you do 12 step work or you do, you pray and meditate in a monastery a while you experience the ground of beings, which is the presence of God in your life. Richard Rohr calls that non-dual Christianity, you know, non-dual consciousness. There's a lot of ways to experience that, but that way of being can turn you into a prophet because mm-hmm. You realize that even just going out into the wilderness, you go backpacking. I remember I, I would do this with my my radical f- student friends. You know, we go out backpacking, and you know, we create our little 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 utopian society backpacking out there in the wilderness. And we come back to society, we're like, holy crap, this culture, the matrix of this, this culture that we're all trapped in, is horrific, <laughs> and everything sucks. <laughs> And we have no autonomy and no participation and, you know, it's totally against the way we're naturally supposed to live. And when mm. you pray and you let God mold you, it's not always a pleasant thing. You're grieving. Your ego is very, very painful, but it leads you to a place of moment to moment contact with God, which allows you to see that our whole society is not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of power and principality. It's not led by the intuitive spirit of love that that is God's spirit. That is Jesus' gift. The Christ, Jesus Christ's gift to us in the Pentecost is this, the spirit that that reigns. It does not have power uh, mm-hmm. in this dominant culture. And if you get rid of the ego, then it does start ruling your life. Mm-hmm. And it makes you into a prophet. It makes you into a radical. And it makes you into somebody who's drastically in conflict with the flow of history and of society of our time. Amen. What else do you have to say about what's messy about all this? This is, this is the title of your podcast. (laughs) You know, I'm very interested in, I guess the, 
how being a radical disciple invites us into things that aren't tidy, you know? It's it's struggle. You've ta- been talking all about struggle this whole time, though. Yeah, I mean, we use this quote momentum all the time. I love it. It's from Marshall McLuhan, who's one of the uh, you know great progressive cultural theorists of our time. He said, "We don't know who discovered the water, but we know it wasn't the fish." Mm. You know, it's like we're swimming around in this dominant culture that sucks. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's racist. It's sexist. It's homophobic, but that's just the that's just the 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 first layer of the level at which it alienates everybody. I mean, yeah. there's an epidemic of depression, of loneliness, of our whole culture is falling apart below the surface. Like we have a mental health epidemic that is bigger than anything we've experienced among young people and old people. We have an epidemic of loneliness. We have an epidemic of, uh, and, and that's just that's on the top of. The mm-hmm. fact that for the first time in human history, that like it's the scientists are telling us that the end of the world is coming. Is they're not and they're not crazy. Right, are people that yeah. are the most credible scientists in our establishment are telling us that the world could end and that we could all die. My logical brain, and this is not just me. I mean, I think really good politicians and scientists and stuff. If I were to bet on humanity now just logically, not with my heart or not mm-hmm. being an optimist, I would bet against humanity. I do not think we're going to change enough to be able to survive on this planet without a climate change that could actually create a climate that, that no human being can live in. That's messy. That's very messy. Gary Snyder, who's a Buddhist, engaged Buddhist thinker, he said, you know, I don't feel like I'm in resistance to the flow of society or nature. I'm just in resistance to the dominant culture and the economy and everything. And that is, that is out of whack. Our, the whole water we're swimming is, is, is out of whack. And the traditions, my Christian contemplative tradition is one, just one way of understanding how the world could be without the toxicity of the water we're swimming in. And indigenous traditions can do this, mystical traditions of many sorts. But, you know, Jesus really gives a, a lot of lessons about how we could live in a, in, a, in a different world. And if you do that, it's going to be messy because you are going to be out of place in this society. You're swimming against the stream, you know, giving up all your all your money and following Jesus is a real deal. Pick the right school of fish to swim. I really think that there's very little you can do by yourself. No, I, I don't. I just don't think we have the power to swim against the stream by ourselves. No, we don't. Yeah, but we can make big waves if we're a community. So thanks for coming on, being part of the Messy Jesus Business community. Where can folks follow your work and buy your books and? and support the Center for the Working Poor. Well, what I recommend actually is signing up to my brother's email list. I write with my brother almost every month. We publish an article. Uh, It's called democracyuprising.org. If you go there, you can sign up on the email list. You can also go to This is an Uprising and sign up on the email list for thisisanuprising.org is our website for our book. And that is, I think, the easiest way to plug in. Mm-hmm. You can also show up if you're in LA, you could show up to our contemplative prayer group, which is every Monday at 730 at the Center for the Working Poor. Great. Thanks, Paul. All right.
I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment, where, as Paul and I discuss the dangers of money when it comes to nonviolent resistance and social change, I would like to read for you a passage from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 6. As you listen, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you pray. And notice if there's any words or phrases that are speaking to you. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and decay destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor decay destroys, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be in darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great will the darkness be? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.